Hello, I'm Father Ron Shibley, Rector at St. John Chrysostom Anglican Church, the host parish of the Anglican Internet Church, and I welcome you once again to our new homily series, The War on Christianity. This time in episode three, for the 15th Sunday after Trinity, I'm going to bring you up to date on the state of the battle with new information about some of the issues I addressed in part one and continue the discussion of how the church got into the present situation. In part one, I spoke with you about the attacks upon our Coptic Christian friends in Egypt. At that time, it was known that at least 42 churches, monasteries, and other buildings had been destroyed fully or in part. As of the end of this past week, we know that the situation is much worse than previously reported. In fact, more than 100 churches or church-related structures have been attacked. The American Thinker website reports another devastating method of attacking Coptic Christians in Egypt, kidnap for ransom. Wahid Jacob, a young deacon, was kidnapped on August 21st. The ransom demand was 1,200,000 Egyptian pounds, which according to the American Thinker's site is about 170000 in U.S. dollars. When his impoverished family failed to make the ransom payment, the young man was executed and dumped in a field, but only after he had been tortured. Did you read any coverage of that story in the American media? I'll bet, however, that you read all about the abductor who hanged himself in his jail cell in Ohio. There are many such stories of kidnappings going back to Easter of this year, but the one which ought to have received massive media coverage and did not is the story of Cyril Jacob, Cyril Joseph, six years old, who was kidnapped in May. The family actually paid the 30,000 Egyptian pound ransom to the kidnappers, kidnappers, but they executed the child anyway and dumped his dead body in the family's toilet. The family had to exhume the decomposed body from the toilet in order to give him a Christian burial. In Nigeria, according to the Christian Post website, Five Christians in the Nigerian city of Jos were recently killed in an attack led by Muslim terrorists who, having discovered that the five were Christians, forced the victims to lie down in a ditch where they were shot. Another man who witnessed the events was nearly killed himself but successfully escaped into a nearby cornfield. You should know that the Boko Haram extremist group, which was most likely responsible for the murders, is committed to taking Nigeria uh, into Sharia law. Did you read about that story in the Washington Post, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, or hear it on the CBS, NBC, or ABC Evening News? Lest you think that threats to Christians are found only in the third world, there is this from Oregon, where the Oregon Bureau of Labor and Industries has ruled that a local bakery cannot decline to provide a wedding cake for a gay marriage. 
In the same state, a bar was recently fined for refusing service to transgender couples. My point is not to belabor you with revolting tales of excess, but to make you aware that discrimination against Christians is rising virtually everywhere in the world. I promised earlier to discuss how we got into the situation and to offer suggestions on what individual Christians can do to fight back against discrimination. I'd like to start today with a discussion, more discussion of how we got here before next time taking up the issue of what to do about it. At least in this country and in Western Europe, we got there by not standing up to the so-called reformers who have steadily eroded the foundation of the Christian church, and they've done so by ceasing to teach doctrine. The inevitable result of the church not teaching doctrine is the erosion of support and understanding of doctrine among both the laity and the clergy. When this happens, both the people and the clergy become more susceptible to erroneous and heretical belief. When there is no foundation in church doctrine, people, laity, and clergy will fall for anything put forward by either the media or corrupted clergy or academics. Some examples in this scenario are the theories of novelist Dan Brown, the reform agenda of the Jesus Seminar, and the healthy, wealthy Christianity of some Protestant evangelicals. They have advanced their agenda by making no attempt to teach Christian spirituality, a discipline widely practiced in the Eastern churches. When the Western Church failed to teach its parishioners the valuable techniques of learning to internalize the beliefs of the Church as a defense against an aggressively secular culture, it left itself open, as in the first example, to anti-religious, anti-Christian ideologies. It did so by making the fundamental mistake of teaching that reason is a basis for the Christian faith. I believe this is one of the most dangerous errors the Western Church has ever made. To accept reason is, in effect, to deny the miraculous, to deny the divine, to deprive people of the belief that there are forces at work in the universe that are beyond human comprehension. Here are some examples. You'll find on many websites the five or six or seven ways in which the stone at the tomb was rolled away. The explanation that the healings accomplished by Jesus were the same as the techniques of modern medicine to combat, say, epilepsy. The demons which Jesus drove out were simply examples of mental illness. Our namesake and patron St. John Chrysostom dealt with these issues in the 4th century. He said, A comprehensible God is no God at all. Let me say that again. A comprehensible God is no God at all. The fact is that if God is comprehensible, he cannot also be eternal and everlasting or possessed of infinite power and majesty. 
The human concept, <clears throat> excuse me, the human concept of reason has its proper application in science and even in the arts where it should be left. No amount of reason can explain away the fact that even if we accept the idea of all God's actions being explicable in terms of human logic or of scientific principle, we cannot explain the existence of God himself. Yes, it does come down to a decision to accept things for which there is no human, logical, reasonable explanation. Next time in Part 4, the final section of this series, I will address suggestions on how the church as a body and its believers as individuals can lead the Christian faith back toward traditional Christianity and thereby strengthen it against assault by militant Islam, by secular atheism, and by ambitious and unprincipled politicians intent upon currying favor with the masses. For my closing prayer, I offer this devotion from the Eastern Church tradition from around the 6th or 7th century, in Syria. Illumine my heart, O sovereign master who lovest man, with the pure light of thy wisdom, and open the eyes of my understanding to the proclamation of thy gospel. Implant in me also the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down all carnal appetites I may lead a godly life, both thinking and doing always such things as are pleasing in thy sight. For thou art the sanctification and illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. And unto thee I ascribe glory together with the Father, who hath no beginning, and thine all-holy and blessed and life-giving Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Glory be to God for all things. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this homily on the War on Christianity, Part 3. I invite you to visit our YouTube site, where we have now posted uh, episodes 1 through 12 in the new Holy Bible New Testament series. Thank you, and may God bless you in all that you do in his name. Amen. <music>